Mewing is a sapphic body horror novella that centers on a small-time Instagram model named Vixen who moves to the wonderful LA in order to pursue uh, her uh, career in modeling. But she's struggling a little bit. And she comes across this friend of hers who's a little bit more interconnected in the social media community, the the beauty grew influencer community. And she tells her about this little influencer co-op called the Bleach Babes, which is led by this supermodel named Margot. So Vix ends up getting an invite to go to this manor and she ends up meeting Margot and is taken under her wing and into her bed. But Vixen quickly learns that there are other things going on in this house that are messing with her perception of reality as well as messing with her sense of self to the point where she's set on a destructive path. So where I wanted to start talking about Mewing specifically is um, the main character is is or wants to be a social media influencer. And so there's a real kind of foundation of the social media world and influencer kind of stuff. So is it something that you're aware of and you're like, I know enough where I can make this the platform for this story? Or is it something where you're like, there's something about this situation that lends itself to the type of story I'm trying to write? Or I guess in basic terms, like why did we go with social media and influencers? That's a really good question. I think that there's kind of, I I think that, the answer is a little bit of both. I've never been a super, like, I I don't have a huge following or anything like that. Um, but I have been in positions where I've been in kind of a more public light. Um, when I was running my own YouTube channel, I was covering, like, indie games and things like that. So I was making a lot of, like, Let's Plays and things like that for indie games. Um, and when I was working for different, like, journalism outlets that were dedicated to video games, there was also just a kind of a part of... The, when you work in those industries, I think that there's a part of yourself that you have to be curating constantly. And there's like a certain, like there's a certain kind of rigidity to it where you have to make sure that you give yourself enough personality, but not too much that people will like pull back or that they find something to attack. So I think that a little bit of that is definitely from personal experience. Again, never, I was never like a big enough person to ever like get a huge amount of experience, but I guess it's just something I was hyper aware of. Um, and then I think on the other hand, I'm just really fascinated kind of by the, between the relationships, like the kind of the parasocial relationships that people have with influencers, um, just kind of the ways that we get attached to them and how they can influence us, not just only to buy things, but in term in like the beauty industry or in like fashion, um, or lifestyle things, it's like changing entire parts of your body. And so I thought that this would be a good way to, kind of I, I thought that social media would be just a really a good backdrop I guess for a horror book um and then also just kind of thinking about my own relationships to like beauty and fashion and things like that growing up as like a young girl I know you grew up like I grew up in the um uh early 2000 late 90 uh early 2000s like to the 2010s um, and I had th- there's just this kind of complicated relationship I think that you develop when you, with with your body when you grow up seeing kind of edited like 
uh, magazines and things like that. And early 2000s diet culture was kind was really horrible. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. I think we're in a period of time where it seems to be making a comeback where people are saying like skinny is in again, and it's horrible. Um, so like, it, I think that just that entire landscape, there's so much to say about it. And I just, I wanted to save my, my own piece. And it's just a very narrow piece <laughs> of that kind of conversation. Um, but I think it's just so fascinating and so rich. I love everything you just said so much that I'm not going to like tag onto it because I would just basically fumble <laughs> to say something that you said way better. Um, <laughs> but um, good, good. That's awesome. Um, and then something I thought of with writing specifically as it has to do with social media, because I listen to like um, podcasts where, you know, it's um, writers talking about blah, blah, blah. And there's, I feel like there's a general sentiment from authors or writers about social media and having to basically like, in addition to create also be a brand and, um, and push engagement. And that's like almost to the person, everybody hates social media. Josh Mallerman very recently was talking about um, not being a Twitter guy. And, um, and I, and there's so much of that. And I've always thought to myself, I just choose to engage how much I want to, but then the flip side of that is if you look at how much like um, followers and how much of like a, like a, a thing I've built up for myself, it, it's a, it's a small group of people. So like, I think that I'm, I'm kind of proof that there's gotta be like some sacrifice to get the thing because like, and I'm just not willing to go there. So like um, my, yeah. my connections are, are very genuine and very organic, but there's also a smaller group than if I was like, more careful about right. that. So um, I know I just hit you with a lot, but like the author side of it is like, man, I resent this often because I have to do this creative thing. And then I have to go like shill for, for, for reads and stuff. So yeah. That too. <laughs> yeah. I think it definitely in some ways can feel a little gross. Um, the idea that you have to, the idea that there's so much of yourself that you have to present online and that you just have to kind of be aggressively marketing all the time um, and how much time of that, that it takes. And it's just like, you know, I think that the the likes, the comments that you get on your work can like make or break your day. Um, like the lack of likes or just the absence of social media presence when I like make a post can just make me feel so bad because I'm like, oh man, like what am I doing? Why am I not getting reach? Maybe I'm not like, maybe I'm not like likable enough. And I'm like, wow, that's just, that's a, that, that spiraling, spiraling so fast. Um, and yeah, yeah, I definitely agree that it, it's just, it's, it's frustrating. I, on the one hand, I love being able to connect with other people because I think that writing, if you're not careful, it can make you feel very like insulated and isolated, but I've been very fortunate in that I've been able to connect with so many people and so many authors online. And I think that those are the relationships that I've developed that kind of keep me going or make the social media aspect worth it. Um, certainly too, when interacting with readers, um, but man, it's when you're trying to increase your reach or something and you're just like, how, how hard do I have to work? What parts of myself I'm willing to put online and just constantly kind of tweaking this and just being hyper vigilant about it. Um, it, it feels almost, you know, like I have a full-time job and then I have a job as a writer. And then this is like the third job yeah. and that I think makes <laughs> it so exhausting. Yeah. Um, I will say, 
in preparation for talking to you, I, I, you know, I, I looked at a bunch of your reels and stuff on Instagram and, um, <laughs> I like your content a lot. It's like Thank easy you. to engage with and fun and like kind of modern and relevant and stuff or, or whatever it is. But like, um, so I like, I like seeing like your content pop up because, and this will tie into something I'm going to talk later once we've got past mewing and we're talking about your writing in general about how, um, I, I guess I'll say it, but like one of the things that I've enjoyed about um, learning more about you is you not seeming to shy away from just really fucked up stuff. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah sure. But we can dive into that later on afterwards. I'm talking about mewing, but that's refreshing for me when someone's just like, look at this fucked up thing. Um, <laughs> uh, so, but going back to, um, the beauty aspect and the, and the, I guess the self image aspect of like wanting to be an influencer and in the book specifically, it's someone who wants to be um, a model. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the goal. She wants to be a model because it's almost like um, it, it, there is a, a sacrifice. You lose something of yourself. You you're trading something of yourself in order to get, the thing that you think is going to make you happy. And I feel like that's kind of a big theme of the book. Um, and, and obviously like the way that you had mentioned it already, it's in a very literal, like how much time do I want to spend? How much do I want people to know about me? But in the book, it gets kind of sinister in a different way too. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to kind of explore the, I, I guess that in regards to how it gets sinister and kind of ties into some, I guess, paranormal, paranormal is not the right word for it because it's really <laughs> just like a demonic presence. But I was thinking about her Vix, the main character, as this cautionary tale um, because yeah. this is essentially a character that keeps sacrificing her self-esteem over and over again to build this fake persona of herself and meanwhile, like whoever she was as a person before meeting Margot and the rest of the bleach babes, like it's gone. It it gets eradicated. It, it's like eradicated. Um, and so I knew that uh, there was this th there's there's this other kind of thing, I guess, in the industry when it comes to like nepotism and how so much of being able to succeed, especially in like the creative industry, is just based on who you know and who you're connected to. So I yeah. think that like the presence of the demon is supposed to serve in, in my mind, it's supposed to serve. I don't know how effective it is as a metaphor <laughs> for nepotism, but like I wanted it to be there to serve as a metaphor for nepotism. The idea that they're engaging with this demon in order to tried to get ahead that there's some kind of supernatural element to how they're uh, going about this but i mean it results in bloodshed it results in just like horrible things happening to other people um and um horrible things that they do to themselves uh it just kind of spirals really out of control which i yeah yeah and um it, it's it's because i was one of the questions I'm just going to dive into this because it kind of seems relevant to what we're talking about. But like one of the things that I was thinking about was when I was reading this book, I was thinking about how um, it really feels kind of like that um, met the devil at the crossroads and made the deal to like, you know, um, be, you know, might be a good musician or whatever, that type of thing. So there's just a general tone of that with, and, and so obviously like Vix, the main character, her, her experience is specific to her situation, but there's very much of a feeling of that. Like I, I, you know, so sold my soul 
for my art kind of a thing. Um, and so that's like, but like kind of a modern take on that, a vision of like, what would that look like um, in, in today's, you know, age and everything. Um, and then the thing specifically about Vix, so you can either respond to that or what I'm about to say. Um, the thing specifically about Vix that I was thinking about, especially when you were just talking about what you just said is that there's almost like a stubbornness to her where um, she won't back down. Like, and mm-hmm. if it takes, like, it's almost like she'll shoot herself in the foot to, to like not be wrong or not fail. And so that's like, I feel like her undoing is this characteristic of just like pushing herself farther than maybe she should. Um, so anyway, that was two thoughts. It was like her characteristic that I think was her failure but then also the idea that it was like a meet the devil at the crossroads kind of thing is, is kind of the theme of or the tone of it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely the meet the devil at the crossroads to try to get ahead. I kind of thought about other people who had um, like other kind of um, people who had arisen to fame and like some of uh, kind of the dirty ways that they would have to do it. Like friend, just like across anything like uh, musicians thinking about musicians who have had to like leave behind their creative partners so that they could get ahead. Um, Thinking about uh, maybe actors and uh, even like directors that possibly had like mistreated different people so that they could get like their certain vision made or like a certain product made. Um, And I think that there's this point where the, 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 the relationships that you have with other people matter and at a certain point when Vix gets to this point where she's making this deal with the devil, I think that she's kind of saying that none of her relationships matter anymore, only her own wants and desires. So she does still in a sense, like want that relationship with Margot. But at a certain point, I think that that becomes devoid of like the, like a genuine love that she may have for her and more trying to just stay grounded, like within the bleach babe um, cooperative. And then, yeah, for, for her, she just kind of pursues failure. Um, she's just kind of this, <laughs> this character. I wanted her to be very obnoxiously naive um, yeah. because I feel like there are a lot, uh, a lot of the popular voices that we see in the social media landscape. Um, not that like people aren't like per se, like educated or anything. But I think that when you spend so much of your time online, like curating this persona, you might become like blind to other things that are happening in the world and other experiences. So when Vix has that kind of challenge by Darlin, for example, like Darlin, who's basically saying, Hey, you know, like she, like the, this person in the house, like I don't know, she clearly has like this eating disorder. And Vix is like, I mean, yeah, but like, you know, what are we going to do about it? And like, she doesn't really engage with this. Um, And Darlin tries to tell her to leave and tries to tell her to get out and like, is essentially mapping out all the ways in which like this relate, this, this relationship with Margot is not symbiotic, but in fact, like parasitic. Um, And she just kind of ignores all that um, because she just doesn't want to face the truth. She wants to get what she wants at all costs. Um, And yeah, I think that in some ways she's, I think that it's fun to see a flawed character um, who I think at times can be a little bit unlikable, but you just kind of want to keep reading about her because she, (laughs) she just doesn't stop. (laughs) You think that there's going to be a stopping point where she maybe like pulls back, but then she doesn't. 
That's, and honestly, so you got me thinking about a couple of things, but um, I like, first of all, I like you saying that she pursues failure. That's brilliant. Um, <laughs> but when reading th- through the book, um, obviously your mind kind of naturally tries to think about where's this going? What direction is this going to take us in? And um, I kept thinking like there was definitely a thread of, so Margot is the, the head of the bleach babes. She's the one that yeah. figured everything out. She created basically the process that churns these, these new people through. Um, and she's got it all established and figured out. And it's obviously like, she yes. spends a lot of time and put a lot of work into like, um, and probably, you know, did a little bit of supernatural stuff to get yeah. this situation established. Um, and then reading through the story, it's like almost leaning toward is Vix just going to like supplant her and take over her place and be yeah. that person. And it's like, that would almost be disappointing because, because of how you built in that kind of naivete and, and, um, mm-hmm. and um, kind of lack of knowledge or skills. And, and it was really just like a big kind of pile of ambition uh, on top of like in a situation that like, like it was the worst case scenario because like, if you just have ambition, you can do a thing and then get what you want, even if you're too dumb to know what it really means. Um, right. So when when I was reading through the story and it was like, I could see a future where she takes over for Margot, I was like, that that would probably be kind of a disappointing outcome because it wasn't yeah. kind of, it, it wasn't earned. So when it didn't go in that direction, I was pretty happy about that. Yeah, no, I knew from the beginning that I did not want Vix to take over. I wanted to kind of like position her as someone who was capable of doing it simply because Margot initiates this relationship because she wants to groom her to be her protege. Yeah. Um, but I was like, just based off of how Vix is incapable of thinking for herself, like that was just, <laughs> that was never going to happen. She kind of bases everything that she, at, once she moves in with the bleach babe, she kind of bases everything about her personality, how she dresses, like how she interacts with other people, what kind of job she takes. She bases it around Margot. So certainly she has the ambition to keep growing her career in a sense, but she doesn't have the ambition to like do any kind of like business development or planning and probably not like engaging with the supernatural. She wouldn't even know where to start on that sense. Um, She's just kind of, I mean, and I think that also kind of speaks to how she is at like the beginning of the book where she's, she's doing what she needs to do. You know, she's growing, it's steady. Um, but until her friend walks in and tells her about uh, the bleach babes, she's not really kind of taking the next actionable steps that she needs to do in her career. She doesn't have those kind of resources. And I don't think that she has the personality to really pursue that. Um, and it's funny because I think even at the end, like Margot accuses her of trying to do this and she's like, what? No, <laughs> like I wasn't even <laughs> thinking about that. What do you mean? Yep. And it's just like, man, <laughs> Vix. <laughs> She's, she's yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, at one point in the story, Margot um, is talking about, it's like kind of in the middle of the story. I think um, Darlin has left or like they're having an argument around right. her conversation, uh, Vic's talking to Darlin about um, leaving and what, what all this means and stuff. And Margot kind of goes into a discussion about the things that they're doing being like taking the power back, taking the power for us. And right. um, 
how historically, you know, we have been marginalized and pushed down and held down and not given the power. And so this is our way of empowering ourselves. Does Margot believe that? That's a really good question. I think Margot wants others to believe that, but I don't think Margot actually believes that. Because I think that (laughs) there's this issue with... So one of the things that I tried to touch on in this book, and I will say it's it's hard because you're writing from the perspective. There's there's so many people can have different perspectives on the beauty industry and fashion, and I'm writing from the perspective of predominantly white women. Um, Mm. And so when Margot says this, she's also ignoring the ways in she's also kind of ignoring the ways that she's like failed to support the members of her house um, and failed to like support them um, being able to like grow their career. Like Darlin mentioned specifically that Margot has made it very like difficult for her to build a life for herself and build her career outside of the house. So Margot definitely wants people to believe that like marginalized people are more in control, but she's, and she's a queer woman. Um, and you you know, she's a queer woman, which is great, but she's also super rich and was born into a very privileged (laughs) lifestyle. So it's like, okay, so you're like failing to mention the fact that you were basically born like into to an extraordinary amount of wealth, like not even like taking the supernatural aspect out of it. She was born into an extraordinary amount of wealth. Of course, she'd be able to kind of build this sort of this sort of business. But someone like Vix is unfortunately like entirely dependent upon her because while Vix is also a white queer woman, she's also like super she does not come from a very good background and she doesn't have the kind of education that Margot does. So Margot, I think tries to present herself as like this very girl boss, this like girl boss character. And she's, she's not, she's kind of almost as bad as the people that came before her, if not in (laughs) some ways worse. So. Yeah. Cause like basically when someone joins um, the bleach babes, like she literally commoditizes them. She like has them sign a bunch of contracts and controls their whole lives, literally controls their whole lives. Um, but makes, but makes their wish come true more or less. And so, um, there's a limit to how much altruism can come in that kind of a situation. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Like I think she presents herself as this very altruistic person. Um, and she's definitely she's definitely not like she's entirely in it for herself. And maybe maybe there's a part of her that like thinks, oh, I'd like to uplift w- women, but always behind whenever whenever she thinks about doing something altruistic or good, there's always that thought behind of how how can this make me money? How can this like help me uh, at the end of the day? How does this help my bottom line? So mm-hmm. but it's interesting because. Uh, and maybe this is just me being a real optimistic person. Um, but in reading the story and reading Margot saying those things in my mind, I was like, well, two things can be true. Like maybe there is a thread in her that like really believes like in an ideal world, this would be the case, but in my specific world, this is how things need to be or something like that. Like she believes it, but doesn't like, uh, maybe act on it as much or something. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So, um, but then, all right. So this kind of leads into another, um, part of the book and I'll be intentionally vague. Um, so as not to spoil anything, but, um, there is a part of the book that I put in quotes as the big gesture. Um, (laughs) and so ostensibly in the story, Vix 
So Vix and Margot have kind of a romantic element to their relationship. And Vix is in her mind, very dedicated to Margot. And because of the kind of social dynamics of the situation, um, she doesn't always feel like, like she matters to Margot, I guess maybe. Um, And so she decides she's kind of a little like ideas put in her head by, um, I think it was Iona. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Lindsay, I think told her to go talk to Iona. Yeah. 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 That um, other people in the past have done this like big gesture um, to show their loyalty to Margot, and Vix doesn't hesitate. I think that goes back to the idea of just her um, kind of dumbly. Yeah. Not, not she's getting in her own way or whatever, but um, so there's this big gesture. And the only thing, the only thing I have a question about there is like, it's happened in the past and to like mixed results and everything. But then my thought is, is, is it, is Margot setting it up that this is kind of an inevitability for the new bleach babes that they're, they're probably going to want to make this kind of gesture. Yes. I think that at a certain point, Margot would expect each of them to either make, to make this gesture or to um, exit the group altogether. Um, okay. She wouldn't want people to exit the group altogether because, I mean, that way she stops making money. I mean, she gets upset when Darlin leaves. Um, but I think that with her, because this is something that's so tied to her family, in a sense, it's almost like they're becoming a part of her family. And she doesn't, and like this gesture in itself is a way that they can prove her loyalty and her uh, their trust to her, but also so that she gets the kind of, a, in her mind, I guess, the approval of everyone else who has come before her, every other matriarch in her family who came before her, who interacted with the demonic presence or did the gesture, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I got that feeling. Um, oh, damn. Uh, yeah. And then that makes me think of... Because, like, lately, I know this is, like, very cliche and everything, but there's just so many cult documentaries out there. And there's, like, a real culty aspect to the Bleach Babe house where, um, and and the real culty element of that specific situation for me is that that didn't come directly from Margot. Other people had hinted or suggested this. And so even though it was kind of implicit, it's not coming from Margot, so it's not her idea. So, like, that had a real culty kind of feeling to me, too, that I thought was really well established. Yeah, there's, defi- there's, there's definitely, like, a culty sort of element to it. And I think that that also kind of, with the, with the backdrop of the social media, there's so many elements of social media that can feel culty, especially <laughs> with, like, the diehard fans, uh, the parasocial relationships, the way that things can get taken just completely like wildly out of context or the way that someone will try to defend another person. It definitely sometimes interacting in online spices, it's, it's kind of like, is this, is this really like a genuine nice fan base or is this a cult? (laughs) So, yeah, that's interesting. And I'm going to, I'm going to say, I'm going to say this as general as possible because um, I love the people, but so let's talk about the horror book world. Um, yeah. I, I know a lot of people who are 
the nicest people in the horror book world. And a lot of people in the horror book world like to say that the people in the horror book world are the nicest people. But um, it seems like pretty frequently there's like some really creep people that are kind of outed and then like, you know, like burned to the stake. Um, So like, it's kind of an odd dichotomy that like of the people that I've met in the like 13 years that I've been talking to authors, I feel like I feel closest with horror writers, but at the same time, I feel like that's where at least, and and maybe now I'm questioning, is it just that the creeps get outed more or is it that there's more creeps or what is it? So like now, now my mind's kind of like tinkering on, on like, what is the actual like explanation for this? But it seems like it's kind of, kind of an odd odd situation. That's interesting. I almost think in some ways that it, that it can be both. I think that a lot more people nowadays feel more empowered, I think, to speak out against people who are creeps in the community. Um, and like the whisper networks are maybe not actual whisper networks as they used to be in the past <laughs> when someone was being a creep, but like actual like vocal platforms. Um, but I also think that because, yeah, like social media has become so important that perhaps it is attracting those people who are creeps a little bit more. Um, because, and because, you know, like back in the day, I, when I was trying to write like letters to authors or emails, it's going to like an email that's maybe managed by like their publicist. It's not like direct interaction with other people now more than ever before you can interact with other people online, like your own idols online. And doesn't that just like kind of fuel some of the problem? Um, yeah, yeah, (laughs) for sure. So I agree. Yeah. And, um, uh, that is, that's the trick too, because if you have such a great experience with a community of people, mm-hmm. you believe in that experience. And so maybe the guard isn't as up as it should be with, but then there's like the creeps of the type of people who are like, I'm going to spend the energy becoming ingrained in this community because then I get the thing right. I want, which is to like be a creep to people. So anyway, right. we don't like the creeps. We like the good people. Um, so, um, yeah, that was just interesting. Like the horror, horror people specifically, I feel like are some of like, some of my best friends in real life are horror writer people. Um, so there's something about, and I think it's like the whole, like, I'm, I'm totally going off on a tangent. I apologize. We're supposed to be talking about your story, <laughs> but it's the whole idea of like how horror plays with your empathy and like yeah. works your empathy that I think you get people who are more empathetic and more, I don't know, good, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I I agree. I think that there's definite, I think that there are a lot of people in the horror community um, that are attracted to writing horror because of like bad experiences that they've had and like trauma that they've had. Um, <laughs> that's why I write a lot of it. Um, <laughs> but, and so, yeah, I think that one, one thing that I like about the horror community um and like, I love writing in other genres too. I, I don't want to like talk trash about other genres or anything like that. <laughs> um, but I think that one of the things I love about the horror community is that because we're so um, normalized to with like things that make us uncomfortable or terrified or horrified, I think that that lends its 
that a lot that, that a lot of the community lends itself to being a little bit more open minded. Like we're more interested in exploring things that are weird or perhaps subjects that are a little more taboo or um, talking about things. Um, you know, I know that there are in some circles online that there are people that don't want to talk about like essay or they will say that they don't want like any essay mm-hmm. in their books at all. Um and like I understand, I understand like from a reader perspective not wanting to see those things, but then I don't understand like the hatred towards the existence of it. And I think that right. people in the horror community are less likely to kind of fall into that sort of situation where as long as you know people are utilizing content warnings and they're prepared for what's in in the story, as long as it's a good story and as long as it explores like a taboo subject, like holistically, um, then that's kind of too, that then I think people are more comfortable with it and I think they're fine with it. You said it perfectly. Um, And the example I would give is like, did you read everything the darkness eats by Eric LaRocca? No, I actually haven't read that one yet. No. Yeah. um, It's got a very specific scene. That's just really heavy. Um. And hard to get through. Um, and so like, but I appreciate why it's in the story and I, and I understand the, like how it contributes to the story, but I've got a friend who can't stomach that type of content and, Oh, and he's a Minnesota person. Um, so (laughs) very cool. Um, and so I would just say to him, Oh man, this is an awesome book, but you probably won't like it because of this. And then, move on because you know if if you just can't like if if it if it's not going to benefit you to read that stuff and you know that and you choose to avoid that i'm gonna do my best to help you avoid (laughs) avoid that right um but like yeah i I like it when people shoot like don't shy away from hard content if it makes the story that they're telling more right what what it's supposed to be or whatever. I know I'm being very vague with what I'm saying, but I, I think right. like if it addresses yeah. like a certain um if it addresses like a certain issue and brings like a certain type of experience to light that maybe hasn't been explored before, that right. can also be like very valuable to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. See, you're you're just way more succinct <laughs> than me. I, I I bumble through saying things and you say it better. So I'm just gonna like I'm gonna <laughs> defer to what you say. Um <laughs> Back to mewing a little bit. First of all, and I'm so terrible at this. Um, I really like the cover. So, yeah. um, and I know that shortwave, I can't remember the name of the gentleman who runs shortwave. He does a lot of the cover design too, right? Alan. Yep. Alan did this cover design. Yeah. 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 Yep. So he did the um, Narcissus uh, and yes. Godfrey one. Yep. He did that and one. I really, yep. I really, I really liked that. And so actually, because I saw the cover for this and eventually talked to the author on my podcast that put shortwave on my radar. And so when I was like, what's coming out, I was looking at what they're releasing and I saw your cover and here we are. So um, the don't judge a book by your cover thing is complete nonsense because like that cover um, got me started. And then I kind of read what the general kind of synopsis of the story was. And I was like, I am so in for this. So um, yeah, great cover. Great, great cover art. Yeah, I really love the cover art. Um, when I was kind of writing the draft, I envisioned sort of doing something that w- maybe like an X-ray 
that would kind of because I, I remember talking to oh, Alan yeah. about it and saying I kind of wanted to do like an x-ray of someone like a side profile um, with like their tongue on the roof of their mouth. But I wasn't sure like how I mean, how are you going to find that image? Like right. that's it's it's it, it would be something that would be very hard to find. And so what I like about the cover is that I think it sort of combines all it it, it, it kind of really captures the essence of the book in the sense that you've got like the girl who's crying on the cover, the girl who's like kind of traumatized and then the um, exposed bone just kind of representing sort of the horrors, like the body horror to come. Um, yeah. And so I think that that X, I, we tossed around like a couple other ideas, but I can't even remember what the earliest drafts looked like uh, for the cover art. Um, but when when he sent me that, he just kind of sent it to me out of the blue. And he's like, yeah, I think I changed the idea in the cover art. And like, here it is. And I was like, oh, like, this is perfect. Like, I think that this <laughs> is working really well. And yeah, so we so I'm I'm super happy with it. I think it's just like it's it's gorgeous. I love it. Yeah. Um. And so I talked about this as, so a previous episode I did was um, like a 2024 horror preview with um, Becky Spratford and um, Emily Hughes, who does the, um, that big list of like everything that's coming yes. out in 2024. Um, and your book was one of the ones I was looking forward to. And it's the funniest moment because um, I was like, it's called Mewing. I said, do you know what Mewing is? And they're like, no. And so I started to explain it. And Becky Spratford was like, my Gen Z kids were just talking about this. And it was like this, like, to like really like topical thing that was, that was happening in the moment. Um, but I had it, but like um, I had heard someone talking about it somewhere also um, just before seeing, you know, seeing the cover for the first time. And I was like, Oh, that's that thing. And so that's that. So like, I think that term is kind of like a, um, a, a right place, right time kind of thing to use right now too, because it seems like it's a newer kind of term, or at least like in my uh, knowledge, but um, yeah. like, yeah. So it's got a lot of like um, currency right now, as far as like people understanding it or knowing what it means, like a shorthand for a thing kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think that with Mui, like it's just such a small, interesting thing that, um, I can't even remember how I learned about it. I want to say that it might have been through like a BuzzFeed article of some kind <laughs> where they were talking about the ways that um, actors uh, pose and Instagram models pose to get like that perfect smile. Like this, just this yeah. little tiny trick that they do behind the scenes. Um, that's not actually, it. it's not genuinely how they smile. Like I doubt that people are <laughs> always going to be like, tongue on the roof of the mouth like smiling when they're taking photos like with their friends or things like that um but it kind of gives you the illusion of like this perfect jawline and like this lovely smile and i was like well isn't that just like the great kind of isn't that just kind of like a great way to sort of kick off the book is that you don't know what these like you don't know what these people are like they're presenting this fake version of themselves including like this fake smile um and then trying to figure out as, as I was writing the book, I tried to figure out ways to sort of tie that into the body horror with yeah. this sense that she loses her voice at a certain point due to a certain mm -hmm. specific incident. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I will not mention that, but um, <laughs> there was like, um, that was such a cool moment because like, and you had built in elements of like, um, 
how she could get away with this thing that she does. And it's just so well executed. And like, um, and, and it is a moment where, um, now I'm just not going to say anything because I'm just going to give away stuff because I'm going to like <laughs> reference other it's things hard. that are similar, but it's got that, the feeling it gave me was like, Oh damn, this is like a, it, it created a moment that was like, we can't go back from this kind of. Um, yeah. when she does a thing and, um, and that was a really cool moment because I was like, okay, whatever happens from here is just going to be weird or, um, sad or there's nothing good is coming out of this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's kind of almost like the final sacrifice that she makes and like just the complete absolution of who she is as a person i would say because it's it's just like really you're gonna do this big extra like not painful because she's not feeling pain at this point um after the gesture but um she's doing something that's essentially going to take away her voice completely and it's Mm -hmm. like you're really going to this kind of length just so that you can win margot's favor and grow your career it's man it's 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 very it 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 is very sad because i think that she is a young girl who as a, a young woman i should say she's like in her early 20s um she's a young woman who is very naive but like definitely i mean if she had stopped thinking of if she had stopped to think and like consider her choices i wonder like if we would have ended up with a different story but then i yeah. think that that's not the story that i would have wanted to tell at the same time no i i yeah, I, I I don't want to read a different version where that doesn't happen because there's I was just like yeah. oh goddamn, um, but <laughs> yeah. uh, I I forgot to mention something that happens earlier in the book um, because I like to I I go so much into themes and talk about the serious stuff and then I'm like wait there's horror, um, and so one of the more chilling or disturbing or awkward or weird scenes happens pretty early in the story so. Vix has just gotten to the Bleach Babe's house, and um, one of the kind of traditions of the group is that the new person chooses like this dinner. They do a dinner every week on a certain day, and so she just chose like veggie burgers and some other stuff, like a chickpea salad kind of thing or whatever. And there's another person in the house who, because of you know some choices she's made, eating is a real challenge for her, and so right. Um, there's a, I wrote the eat the burger moment is what I wrote in my notes. And, um, and so like it goes from being awkward to like, Oh, this is kind of funny, kind of whatever to like, uh-huh. Oh no, this is going too far to like, yeah, this is pretty horrifying. And um, I feel like because you didn't know what the outcome was going to be, it got very like Lord of the flies, like real quick. Like, um, Yes. Like the whole like like mob mentality of like I think that if I was just me, we would it wouldn't have turned out this way. But since the whole group is doing this thing, uh, I guess I'll do it too. So that was a a cool kind of like as far as like horror moments goes, like the eat the burger moment was was a pretty rough rough thing to read. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 very um yeah. I kind of wanted to set it up as this moment where. You know, I think I think that when you learn about 
Margot, you might think that she's a little bit altruistic with the romantic element. I think it can kind of like um, might impede someone's perceptions of who Margot is as a person and be and maybe you think, oh, she's just like this altruistic billionaire. It's like a love story. Like she's just <laughs> going to put this girl under her wing. It's 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 a billionaire X, like it's a little billionaire romance kind of plot and then you actually get into this is kind of the first moment of how you see that how she truly leads this house um yeah. and to basically let the reader know nope no you you can't trust her um and i think it also i really love the scene just uh from just the perspective of uh i there's there's situations in my life where like some messed up things have happened and I've kind of been a fly on the wall. And I think what's interesting is just having Vix be this this fly on the wall, almost just like witnessing everything that's happening before her, but ultimately not doing anything to stop it. Because yeah. um, yeah. I think that, yeah, with the mom mentality, it's really hard to fight back against that. It's very hard to find your voice and she's not the kind of character that's going to find her voice in that situation. So. Yeah. Cause like in her mind, this was her one opportunity. And if she does the thing that an, any normal person would do, she just blew her up her one opportunity. Like that's, that's kind of her right. mentality. But um, what it does from like a storytelling perspective, at least as far as I'm concerned is it tells you right then nobody's safe. Yes. So yes. I thought that was a very effective way at the beginning to be like, I don't care. Like, like you were just saying, like everything feels comfortable. You needed a moment to tell you like, yeah, like shit might, might be not so great. <laughs> right. Things might not be good. Like this woman might not be operating under the best, like pretenses here. <laughs> She's yeah. not for sure. Yeah. But like, and then like, it also tests, loyalty it tests how far will people go so there's a lot of utility to that scene where it's like how much will you fall in line what do i have to do to push you to fall in line so there's a lot of that kind of like opportunity in that situation too right margo definitely challenges the girls um a lot in that scene and some of them fall in line almost immediately like Lindsay, for example like already is picking 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 um and uh, Lindsay definitely is the type of character that I think has has already pretty much fallen in line with what Margot wants. So it's 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 I think it's also just an interest interesting showcase of the other's personalities. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it does kind of introduce you to the group too. That's a good point. Yeah, it was a very like high utility scene uh, from a from a storytelling perspective. Um, you got a lot accomplished there, so that's pretty cool. Well, thank you. Yeah, um, I wasn't sure. It's it seems like it shouldn't be that horrific, and I was like, I wonder if it'll actually come across like that intense, or if people will find it like comedic, like too comedic when it's supposed to be messed up. So to hear that it's a good example of storytelling, like I'm I'm very happy about that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I thought so. Um, um, and I know that I overthink things. So like, you know, who knows, but like, I definitely found that in, and honestly, the tell is going to be, if like, that's what people mention, you know, it was an effective scene. Like if people really like eat the burger as a thing, yeah. then you know that it was an effective scene. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like when I started Ooh. saying it, I knew you knew what I was talking about. So um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really good scene. Um, and then I guess kind of wrapping up, talking about mewing, um, was there any kind of, uh, cause we kind of talked about some of the themes and 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the meaning behind some of the stuff that happens and everything, was there any kind of inspiration that, or like, are there any like stories that you were like, I, I'm, I'm kind of going for this feel, or is there an allegory there? Or is this kind of like your own original thought based on the things that we talked about? It's, it's kind of my own original thought based on the things that I talked about. Um, it's definitely like, I think I wrote in the acknowledgement section, it's, it's hard to remember what specifically I wrote in my <laughs> acknowledgement section, but I remember when, when I was in graduate school, I went there for film school and I did mm-hmm. a shot, a little horror film called, um, serotonin and serotonin was about a girl who started to, um, do like these procedures on herself, on her body, um, so that she could resemble like one of her favorite influencers. Um, and I, because that was like a project for school, it was for my graduate degree. Um, there were things that I had to kind of whittle down or take away to sort of like appease like different, you know, people in that, in that evaluation process. Um, and so, and also there's limitations because it's just like, you can't make, you know, I think that that, that, that film was shot on a budget of like $6,500 around there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a limitation in terms of what we could do. It was a short amount of time. And so I still, I remember finishing serotonin and I remember thinking that there were so many other things that I could say about this specific subject, but I was like, I don't want to deal. I don't want to start another <laughs> film on me. I don't want to start another. Yeah. I went on um, Seed and Spark, I think, to do that campaign, and that was a horrible experience, which I will <laughs> save for like another time. But it was terrible. Um, and I was just like, I don't, I don't want to ask people for money. Um, I just want to kind of write the thing that I want to be able to explore this. Um, so that's what I did. That's, that's, uh, kind of how I start, uh, how I started it. But I also thinking about like thinking about mewing makes me think about serotonin. And then it makes me think about the things that influence the development of serotonin. Um, swallow. I don't know if you've seen that film, but swallow was definitely, yeah, swallow was a film. Yeah. It's a film about a woman, a pregnant woman with, um, I can never pronounce it, but it's either pica or pica. Um, and I thought a lot about kind of the visuals in Swallow and um, thought a lot about kind of that intense storyline, uh, which is also it, it it at its core is a story about an abusive relationship and someone escaping an abusive relationship. Um, and so some of those elements, I think, have made their way into mewing um, and some of like the sort of like quiet body horror elements have made their way into mewing as well. Um, mewing, I think just has a more supernatural take and is like less, less entirely focused on the abusive relationship and more about the, um, more about the, uh, gosh, how to say this more, more about like the, the social media element, the body horror element, that sort of thing. Um, but Swallow is a very interesting film in that it presents how eating is kind of used as a symbol of control. And and a lot of people with like um, eating disorders and things like that, uh, a lot of times when people like um, 
restrict food or do don't eat or don't eat or um, do those kinds of habits, it's because that they're trying to regain control. So when this woman um, with her pica, she's she's eating these things, she's eating these things, she's eating things that she knows she's not supposed to eat um, because she's trying to regain the sense of control over her life because so much of it is being curated for her by her husband and his family. And so I think a little bit of that um, food as a method of control or, or eating habits as a method of control definitely made their way into mewing. So yeah, actually, actually, yeah. wow, it's been a long time since I thought about swallow, <laughs> but I think that definitely made its way into mewing. That yeah. ended up being one of those. There's so many um, movies that I know I would dig that I'm just too scared to watch because then I'd have to think <laughs> about the stuff, you know, um, not from yeah. like a gross out perspective, but like from like a dealing with the emotions and the psycholo- psychology behind stuff. kind of Like there's so many movies where I'm like, I need to watch this, but like, I'm a little bit, I'm not, I have to get, I have to work myself up to be in the right place for it. So that was kind of in the, the, that category, I think. Yeah. There's, there's <laughs> still like a long list of horror films that I need to watch that like, I've just kind of been bracing myself for. <laughs> yeah. I've seen so yep. many classic slash slashers <laughs> and things like that. A lot of classics and it's like kind of the weird, like weird, like independent ones. I think that I need to like dive into more. And those are the ones that I think are the real stomach turners. Yeah. So I'm yeah. excited for those, but also like, oh man, I know I'm going to have nightmares. Yep. <laughs> Same thing. I'm, I'm kind yeah. of a wimp about it. Um, all right. So zooming out a little bit from mewing to um, like, uh, I went from, so I'm a new reader of you. I know that you've got stuff that you've released previously. Um, I went from uh, being interested in this, novella to seeing um oh by the way i'm just gonna say for anybody listening um this is a novella and so uh i read the first like 25 percent i read you know before going to sleep one night and then the rest of it in one train ride to work and it was just like a real a real ride so it's a quick and it's an entertaining read so i'm just gonna put that out there as well um but then like you know looking into your social media and everything um, I was like, oh man, I'm, I'm trying to talk to this person about um, a novella that's coming out in February, and I and and it's and I realize you had something come out like in yes. January too. So <laughs> I like, got that. yeah. <laughs> so for for the audio audio only people, it's um it's another novella called Affini- an Affinity for Formaldehyde, um, which just released in in January from Grindhouse. And so I ordered it, but I, I'm I'm doing this crazy reread of some stuff for the podcast, and so I didn't get a chance to read it before we talked. And then, like looking deeper into, so you did just do a cover reveal for something that's coming out later this year. Yes, um, <laughs> called um, Haunting Melody. Yes, but you've got a couple of other things: Vicarious, uh, Monster yep. Sona. So like. <laughs> and 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 so all of a sudden I'm like, is this person just constantly releasing things? Like, is are you a very prolific pr- prolific person, or are you just is this like a moment where there's kind of everything's a lot of stuff is packed in all at the same time? I th- okay, a little bit. Um, in regards to that, I think it, it, it's a little bit of both. Um, writing has just always been like one of my favorite pastimes. Like when I was a little kid and I was like ten, um, I was probably uh, playing around on my parents' computer more than I was playing with like my dollhouses and just like sitting there and writing things in Word. Um, and that's I think how I got to be such a fast 
typer too. So that mm. really worked to my benefit. Um, so writing has just always been this really great outlet for me. And even when I don't necessarily want to write a book or I don't have an idea for a book, I almost always like want to write something each day. It just really kind of helps me uh, with like, it, it, it helps me. I think it's just, it's a really good outlet. I think it helps me regulate myself a little bit and it brings a lot of joy. Um, but with this has just been like a really wild past couple of years because I actually tried to like map it out. I was kind of like, okay, how much time am I spending on my computer? At the beginning of this month, I, I at the beginning of January, I should say, I was like, how much time am I actually spending on my computer? Do I need to go outside more? And I tried yeah. to like do kind of a get a map out of when I stopped and started these projects. And yeah, pretty much a lot of them came out uh, were finished one after the other. Mewing, I think, was originally written back in 2021, so it's actually been some time for that to come out. It, I think, it took like a couple years for that to get picked up. So it's just by an uh, chance that it's it's kind of uh, it's coming out now. Um, but Haunting Melody and uh, Vicarious and an Affinity for Formaldehyde, and then one other novella that hasn't been picked up yet. Um, those were all written uh, or finished, like the manuscript was finished like last year. Like Haunting mm -hmm. Melody, as soon as Monster Sona was done, I finished Haunting Melody. I sent that to my publisher. Um, and then Vicarious, I actually think I was considering submitting that to Grindhouse because I knew I wanted to work with Grindhouse. Mm -hmm. But then I saw that Grindhouse was like on their submission guidelines. They were less looking for serial killers. And I'm like, damn it. But like, that's, <laughs> that's literally what this character is. Like I can, you know, I can talk about all the other elements in it all I want, but she's really just a serial killer. And so I was like, damn it. Okay. So I fit, I finished it because it was just so much fun to write. Vicarious, I think has been so much fun to write. Um, and then after that, I went into an affinity, which, um, they grindhouse at the time was looking for like hag exploitation and things like that where, and I was like, oh, there are so many interesting things that I can say about like relationships with, um, older relatives in the family and things like that. And so that mm -hmm. I think kind of kickstarted affinity. Um, so last year I just was really busy. Uh, I just, I had a lot going on, um, in, in terms of what I wanted to say. Um, I was also kind of dealing with, uh, I was, I was diagnosed with, uh, PTSD, um, a couple years back now, I think it's hard to remember. Um, and it was hard for me, I think in some ways to leave my house. So okay. it was yeah. nice. So I think writing became another sort of outlet for me where it was the one thing that I was doing and I did it to to help process a lot of things. And so it, it helped like it helped a lot. And it was just kind of, I think the result of like trying to recover from things, staying inside a lot, I ended up writing a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, I, yeah, I was just kind of blown away. I was like, there's a new title. There's another title. There's another title. Um, and, um, but no, I'm really excited about, so I picked up affinity for formaldehyde. Once I finished mewing, I was like, all right, I'm going to read more. Um, more of your stuff uh and the oh, the premise just sounds really cool yeah um so uh do you can you give a quick pitch of affinity for formaldehyde yeah an affinity for formaldehyde is about a queer woman named lou who returns to her hometown to stop her childhood best friend max from marrying her grandmother paula and when she gets there and tries to stop 
what's happening, she realizes that they need her for something and that they're not going to let her go home anytime soon. <laughs> uh, and so ensues like a bunch of very uh, psychotic and terrible like science experiments that defy like the laws of man, <laughs> like the laws of any kind of ethical code. Um, and I think it's just, yeah, I think it's just, it's a really, it's meant to be like a really interesting conversation, I think on, um, ageism. And I wanted to also talk about like generational trauma. Um, yeah. and so that's sort of what it focuses on and so it kind of cycles through. And, and that's, I think knowing what the general idea of that story was, plus having read mewing was where I was like, this person's just not afraid to talk about fucked up things. So, yeah. um, yeah, it was really cool. Yeah. So, um, that's definitely, <laughs> definitely excited to dive into that and, and selfishly. So this came up in my 2024 horror preview. Mm -hmm. I, I read, I'm not a huge reader, but I, I read, I want to say I read like 32, 33 books last year. And there was a part where I got into the air where I was like, man, if there were just some novellas, um, yeah. I could get more stories um, because I feel like right now, and I, people might have opinions on this, most traditionally published books are about 320 to 340 pages. I don't know mm -hmm. what it is about, like, everything is that number of pages. Mm -hmm. If you look at, like, classic books, like... A lot of like the classics are like 180 to 240 pages. And I'm like, where are those right. books? Um, and so like right. selfishly in order to uh, consume more stories and like maybe have more conversations, I'm like, I need to bring more novellas into my life. Um, and so the fact that you seem to be putting out um, good chunks of novellas is like encouraging to me. It's like maybe people are embracing the idea of novellas. Yeah, I love novellas as a form. Like, I don't think I could read as much as I do if I wasn't reading a ton of novellas. Just because, yeah, I've had to. I've I've got quite a number of books on my shelf. I don't know <laughs> how many of them <laughs> that you can see from this angle, but yeah, like it's 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 hard because there's so much that I want to read. But when I get the book or I buy the book, and it's yeah, it's you know three hundred, four hundred something pages, and I'm like, okay, this is gonna probably. Like, even if I set aside dedicated time to read every night, this is probably going to take like a week, maybe two to comb through at at, at best. Um, and I really love novellas as a format because I think that while a book is supposed to kind of be a universe, a novella is like a snapshot of a, of the, a universe. It's like a photograph of the universe. And mm -hmm. so there's a lot that you can talk about within novellas, but you don't necessarily have to explain all the world rules for people to get it. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't think in Mewing you need to explain where the demonic presence comes from. It's just there. I don't think we need to do a whole backstory on Margot's family and why they got tied up with this demon. It's just all that's all you need to know is that there's like this whole connection between that. And so what I like about novellas is that it kind of fast tracks a lot of this world building. Um, but it also just gives, and, and by doing that, I think it kind of lends itself to more interesting conversations between characters. I think it lends itself to like better stretches of dialogue and things like that. Um, I really just love novellas as a format. And then like, like you were saying, I, I hope that they become more popular. I know that some like agents and individuals and like the uh, liter literature community, I think, don't think the market's there yet. But I honestly think more people would read if there were more novellas. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I feel like sometimes there's an opportunity for novellas to resonate. I think more um, for a longer duration. Like um, I'm a big fan of Zoya stage. I think she's a great author and um, she's got a, a no, like a, like a fairy tale kind of novella called um, the girl who outgrew the world. And you know, it's like 150, 160 pages, something like that. But like every time I think about that book, like my heart reacts like there's something about that story that she packs into those that number of pages that it's not there's not all this extraneous detail kind of like what you were saying like it's to the heart of the matter and it's just the stuff that like she doesn't explain how any of the supernatural stuff is happening in the book like you said she just says what's happening and um and like and there's so many narrative ways to to shortcut that like we're seeing things from a young girl's perspective. She doesn't know why things are happening. That's all we need to know is like that it's happening to her and she doesn't get it. Right. So like it doesn't take away from the story that we don't know because we're seeing it from her perspective. But anyway, like I think sometimes when it's just to the heart of the matter and that's all you're getting, like it almost kind of maybe can stay with you longer or like not the point doesn't get lost in a bunch of other stuff too. Yeah, def I I de definitely agree with that. I think that some of the novellas that I've read from like Christopher Triana, like Haley Piper, um, reading like Queen of Teeth and things like that, like those have definitely stuck in my mind because, I mean, you're just kind of take they just launch you right into the journey, yeah. and when you're kind of strapped in, you're like buckled in to do it. Um, <laughs> It just kind of takes you through very fast. And I love that they can still have an impact or like resonate with me after I've like closed that final, final page. Yeah. yeah. One that I read recently, and this isn't going to get into like a, let's talk about all of the cool novellas thing, but it was um, a book called the crane husband by Kelly Barnhill. Oh, okay. I've oh man. Um, yeah. And it was, it was the reason that I read it was because she had had some sort of traumatic brain injury. And this was a book that she had written after. And there was a whole, like I read an article about how like it was a challenge for her to write the way that she had before because she had this injury. And so like, mm -hmm. um, you know, there was that whole, I was like, Oh, that's compelling. Like imagine being someone who needs the, you know, this in order mm -hmm. to do the thing that they love. And now that's threatened. So like yeah. just as a person, the whole story was compelling. And then I read that in like an hour. And I was like, man, this is such a fucking great story. Um, and so, yeah, like I, I'll talk about it as much as, as much as I can because it's so good. But anyway, uh, yeah, great novella. So, all right. Wrapping up our conversation. Um, uh, first of all, I, I'm not going to thank you yet. Cause like, I'm, I'm going to ask you to tell us stuff, but, um, is there anything, uh, cause we were talking about, um, the, like the idea of novellas and stuff. Is there anything, um, that you've read recently or that you're looking forward to reading that you really just want to like gush about? Yeah. Um, something that I've read recently. Um, I read Kat Voller's, um, the desert Island game that recently came out. Um, Kat, uh, I, I got pointed onto it because, uh, Slashic horror, who was my publisher for vicarious, they reached out and they wanted a blurb for, the um novella and it's a really excellent short thriller read that uh kind of explores the idea of what would happen if it's the end of the world and you had to live on like a desert island with someone but it gets like a little bit more twisted than that like there's there's other things that go into it that just kind of turn into this 
like total mind boggling experience that left me on the edge of my seat. I love that one. Um, similarly, I think Stephanie Sander Jacobs also with Slashik is releasing uh, Pyramidia, which I think is a vampire story about an MLM marketing scheme. <laughs> so oh, it's, nice. <laughs> yeah. So it seems it's, it seems very funny. Um, and it's, it's just a very interesting concept. And I'm, I'm honestly a little mad that I didn't think about like the MLM scheme. Cause I'm like, damn it. That is just, that is horrifying. That is such yes. a good like premise for a horror book. Um, and then I also recently read, uh, Remy Oliver's, um, Panic Playhouse, which is an extreme horror novella that, uh, is about a couple of kids who go on a joyride and they end up, and it just basically goes horribly wrong. And they end up kind of getting involved in some dark web stuff. And that is when I, I do read a lot of horror books. That's pretty much the predominant thing that I read. If I'm not reading like rom-coms, I'm reading horror. And this was something that honestly like sickened me to my core. And I love that I had that kind of visceral reaction because <laughs> I think it's when you read so much horror, it gets to a point where you're like, eh, it, it, it's, 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 it's. I love the stories and things like that, but it's hard for me to get like an emotional reaction, like of just like disgust. And mm. I love that. <laughs> like Panic Playhouse absolutely does that. And Panic Playhouse, I think, came out not today, but like a couple of days ago. So it's out right now. Cool. Um, and I think it's a really great fast read. Yeah. Awesome. Very cool. Um, and where, how would people be able to uh, connect with you? in general online or whatever. Yeah. Um, you can find, find me on my website, which is Chloe Spencer online.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Hey, at Chloe Spencer dev, um, D E V. Cause I used to be, I was a game developer for a time. Uh, technically still am. I need to make, I need to get back to working on that game. Um, <laughs> and then I have an Instagram and a TikTok that's at, Hey, it's Chloe Spencer. Awesome. Well, um, First of all, I, I, I want to thank you for taking some time to talk to me about mewing. I think that um, I'm always I'm lucky because it's one thing to read something and enjoy it, but then it's another thing to be able to talk to the person who made it. So I'm, I'm always I'm very thankful that I get to do this kind of stuff. Um, so thanks for taking the time to talk to me, but also thanks for um, creating something that was hugely entertaining to read. Well, thank you. Well, thank you for so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, and I'm glad that you enjoyed it. It's very <laughs> weird. So it's <laughs> you never know what'll happen <laughs> if people will enjoy it or not. Yeah. <laughs>